Acts chapter 24, we'll begin reading at verse 24. Let's read. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Lord, thank you for your presence we've sensed in this worship time. You have been so real to us. Thank you. And now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. May this be a word that will penetrate our hearts, that will challenge us, will encourage us and inspire us, ultimately will transform us into the image of your own Son. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for loved ones who are not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith and ask you to send the Holy Spirit after them, draw them back to you. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. Thank you for hearing our prayer that we pray today in the only name that matters the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever found yourself in a situation where your faith was challenged by someone in a position of authority, you have a small understanding of how the Apostle Paul was feeling in the story that forms the text for the message today. Last week, you'll remember, we left the Apostle Paul in chapter 18 of the book of Acts in the city of Corinth. Well, a lot has happened to him since chapter 18. In the next chapter, chapter 19, we find him in the city of Ephesus. There he encountered 12 disciples of John the baptizer. After praying for them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was in Ephesus that they took aprons and handkerchiefs that had been worn by Paul and cut them in pieces and carried them to those who were sick and demonized. When they laid those claws on the afflicted, the diseases left them and the evil spirits departed. Many of the people who practiced magic and sorcery in that city brought their books into the town square and burned them as a testimony that they were renouncing those evil practices. The chief pagan deity worshipped in Ephesus was Artemis, also called Diana. And once people began following Jesus, the sales of Artemis idols dried up, creating an economic issue for Demetrius the silversmith and the other artisans who crafted those trinkets. Consequently, a riot ensued, led by Demetrius, and put the city into an uproar. Paul managed to escape harm, but soon left for other parts. Next, he traveled to Troas. While he was preaching to believers in Troas, he went on all night with his sermon. Somewhere in the middle of the message, a man by the name of Eutychus, who was sitting on the windowsill of the third story, drifted off to sleep, fell three stories, died from the fall. 
and was brought back to life by Paul. Never one to let a little thing like a death and resurrection interrupt him. Paul then proceeded to preach the rest of the night in order to finish his sermon. I like Paul. Paul then retraced his steps going from Troas to Miletus and then on to Jerusalem. He was on a tight schedule trying to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. He was bringing with him an offering for the relief of the saints in that city. While at Jerusalem, he became aware of a rumor being spread that he was teaching people to abandon the Jewish traditions. In order to demonstrate his orthodoxy, Paul agreed to participate in a ceremony of vows some of the Jewish brothers had taken and actually paid the expenses for this ceremony of purification. Well, that idea backfired when some people saw Paul in the marketplace with Trophimus, who was a believer from Ephesus, and assumed that Paul had brought this Gentile into the temple in violation of the law of Moses. Another riot ensued, which resulted in the Roman commander being called out with his soldiers in full riot gear. They came upon the scene, and once more, another false assumption was made. Paul was arrested by the Romans. The next day, Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. Once again, a riot broke out when the Sanhedrin split along theological lines, the Sadducees versus the Pharisees over the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul was again taken into custody to protect him from the mob. There was a group of his detractors who were so vehemently opposed to him, they entered into an agreement and took a vow they would not eat anything until Paul had been killed. However, the plot was overheard by a nephew of Paul. When word of the conspiracy came to the attention of the Roman commander, Paul was transported in the middle of the night to Caesarea. This is where we find Paul in chapter 24, making his defense in front of the governor of the region, Felix. When you think about it, it would have been really easy for Paul to feel intimidated, The Jewish leaders are out in force. Even the high priest has traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea for the hearing. They have hired a high-dollar lawyer who has poured on the flattery and followed it up with one false accusation after another. Paul, on the other hand, is standing alone. He has done nothing but been obedient to the ministry to which God called him, and it has landed him in one mess after another. To the outside observer, it might seem Paul has made a horrible mistake. But Paul's predicament teaches us something about the providential plan. When you read Paul's travel adventures, you discover he didn't necessarily have to be in this place. Over and over again, at various stops along the way in his trip back to Jerusalem, people warned Paul he was going to face severe hardship if he persisted in going to Jerusalem. All the way back in chapter 20, he testified in his farewell address to the believers from Ephesus in verses 22 and 23. He said, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. In chapter 21, the ship on which Paul is traveling has landed at Tyre. Verse 4 of that chapter tells us, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
Later in that same chapter, after they have arrived at Caesarea at the home of Philip the Evangelist, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. Verse 11 records, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Warning after warning after warning has been sounded. Now Paul is standing in chains before Felix and every one of his friends had every right to look on and say, see, I told you so. If you had only listened to us, you wouldn't be in this place. To every one of the onlookers, it appears Paul has missed the will of God. He was warned, but he stubbornly went ahead with his own plan anyway. And now look where it's gotten him. Well, here's the truth you need to remember. Circumstances are not the prime indicator of whether a person is in God's will. Nobody else was aware of what happened in verse 11 of chapter 23, after Paul was taken into custody by the Romans. Here's what it says. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You see, being in the will of God isn't so much about pleasant circumstances as it is about being obedient to the voice of the Lord. Paul's purpose, Paul's goal, Paul's mission, Paul's destiny was to proclaim the gospel even in Rome. And no riot, no jail, no trial could dissuade him from pursuing that purpose to which God had called him. And somewhere along the line, you're going to have to make up your mind that you're going to ignore the circumstances and you're going to be absolutely, persistently, dogmatically obedient to the voice of the Lord and his call on your life. You're going to have to stop being swayed by every wind that blows. You're going to have to stop being sidetracked by every negative word that is spoken. You're going to have to stop being blocked by every unpleasant incident that comes your way. You're going to have to make up your mind. You're not going to be dissuaded from fulfilling the purpose to which God has called you. You're going to have to determine you're going forward no matter the cost. You're going to have to decide once and for all that none of these things move me. You're going to have to make your theme song, I shall not be moved. Paul says, prophesy against me. I'm still going on. Tie my hands with my own belt as an illustration of what's going to happen. I'm still going on. Weep over me. Use all your powers of persuasion to get me to quit. (laughs) I'm still going on. Listen, everyone around you doesn't know what God is saying to you. You can't measure whether you're in the will of God by public opinion. Remember, remember Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. When he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove lights on his shoulder. God the Father speaks from heaven, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what you call affirmation. Right? Right? But the very next verse tells us Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he fasted, there he was tempted. 
And most of us would look at Jesus in the wilderness and say, he missed the will of God. But it was the spirit who took him there. Because there was a work that needed to happen, and the only place it could occur was in the wilderness. Some of y'all missed that, so let me explain what I just said. Sometimes... The only thing God can do in your life, the only way God can do what he needs to do in your life is to get you in the wilderness. You thought it was punishment. No, 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 no. No, this is instruction. This is God working with you in a way that you could not experience any other way except he had to put you in a timeout in the wilderness so he could talk to you, so he could get you straightened out in some areas. When Jesus came out of the wilderness, the Bible says he came in the power of the Spirit. And I'm trying to tell you, if you're facing strongholds and powers too great for you, and you know God has spoken to you, then you just hang on. Stop questioning yourself. Stop second-guessing yourself. I'm preaching to somebody right now that needs to hear this. Stop beating yourself up over the lack of productivity and over the severity of the hardship and over the dryness of the path. Tune out the negative voices around you. Tune in to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Stand strong in the confidence of God's providential plan for your life. Now, somebody needs to praise God if you believe that. Not only do we learn something about the providential plan from this story, but then Paul begins his defense, and here we see his poignant presentation. Let me call your attention once again to verses 24 and 25. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Watch this. Heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Now, Paul is standing before a man who has the ability to determine whether he lives or dies. Instead of pleading for his life, instead of resorting to the same kind of flattery as that used by the attorney for the Jews, Paul takes this opportunity to speak to this person in power about faith in Jesus. Now, Luke, in writing this, doesn't doesn't tell us everything that was said. He just gives us kind of the thumbnail sketch, gives us the outline. But no doubt, when it says he told him about faith in Jesus, no doubt Paul told Felix and Drusilla about who Jesus was, the promised Messiah. I suspect he talked about why Jesus came and what he accomplished. No doubt. He spoke about his sinless life and the miracles he performed. Knowing Paul, he most certainly would have talked about his death, burial, and resurrection. Everything sounded intriguing when he talked about Jesus until Paul continued. He could never leave well enough alone. (laughs) Until Paul continued to preach a sermon that spoke directly to where Felix and Drusilla were living. He had no interest in flattering Felix as the lawyer for the Sanhedrin had done. Instead, he took the truths of Christianity and made them personal. 
In speaking about faith in Jesus, Paul doesn't pull any punches. His, his message has three points. He speaks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Those are his three points. Now, if you know anything about the story of Felix and Drusilla, you know just how risky this was for Paul. If we could have interviewed Felix on the street, we would have been struck by his rags-to-riches story. He began his life as a slave. He was freed by a man named Claudius, or Claudius, and he worked his way up to become one of the emperor's favorites. His faithful service led to promotions through the ranks of the Roman government until he was finally appointed governor of Judea. Historians have described Felix as cruel, covetous, and criminal. Known as an incompetent politician, he was a narcissist and a hedonist who lived only for himself and his own pleasures. I'll give you one example. In one instance, Felix became annoyed with the Jewish high priest, Jonathan. So he bribed with a great deal of money one of Jonathan's most faithful friends, a citizen of Jerusalem whose name was Doris, to bring robbers into the city and to the temple as if they were going to worship God. These robbers had daggers under their garments and at the appointed signal fell upon Jonathan and slew him. This is the man to whom Paul preached righteousness. He doesn't mince words. He tells him the truth about his past deeds. See, truth means fixed, resolute, unwavering, a fact, an infallible certainty. And this is what Paul presents to Felix. Paul tells him God has a standard by which to live, and that standard is called righteousness. And I want to tell you, this is the same truth we must proclaim to those in our sphere of influence today. The truth to learn is this. The accurate measure of truth is not experience, but revelation. Let me say that again. The accurate measure of truth is not experience, but revelation. Now, you know, we live in a time in which we are told that truth is relative and fluid, What's true for you may not be true for me. What's true for me may not be your truth, and everybody has their own truth. Well, no, if it's that flexible, it's not truth by definition. It's opinion. We, we got lots of opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. By contrast, the Almighty Creator declares there is such a thing as absolute truth. This truth is found in a person, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he declares without reservation, you can know the truth, and when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Truth, by definition, is the same for everybody regardless of position or power or wealth or ethnicity or background or culture or natural inclination. Let me tell you some truths. The truth is all have sinned. The truth is none of us is good enough to save ourselves. 
The truth is the end result of sin is death. The truth is our only hope of salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. The truth is you must be born again. The truth is there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. But the only way that truth can impact our lives to make the changes that are necessary is when it comes by revelation. See, you don't argue truth into someone's life. You don't debate truth into someone's life. The only way it happens is for the Holy Spirit to enlighten the understanding of our heart and mind through revelation. Listen, listen. There's a reason There's a reason people in our culture have started identifying themselves by their sexual orientation. There's a reason people identify themselves as the opposite of their birth gender. There's a reason we hear arguments that we should just accept and affirm people because this is the way God made them. The reason isn't because it's logical, because it flies in the face of logic. The reason is it because it's truth, because it is the exact opposite of truth. The reason we have this dysfunction is because the God of this world has blinded their eyes to the truth. The reason is because of deception. And the only way deception is broken, the only way spiritual blindness is opened, is by divine revelation. Revelation truth is often inconvenient. Revelation truth is usually puzzling. Revelation truth can be uncomfortable. Revelation truth can even be a bit frightening. But revelation truth, when it is welcomed and embraced, is what will give you the grace to stand strong in the face of opposition and will ultimately bring you out in victory. Am I doing okay? Paul, no, you don't have to clap. I just want to make sure everybody's still with me on board. All right. Paul becomes a model for the people of God if we wish to remain a relevant church in a modern world. In the face of powers arrayed against us, we must not back down from proclaiming the truth of God's word. We must be prophetic voices, both in word and in deed, challenging the unrighteousness of our culture, calling people to repentance. It doesn't matter if they try to cancel us. We still have a responsibility to stand strong for truth. Now, that's the first point of Paul's message. He looks at the past deeds of Felix and speaks to him of righteousness. Then Paul turns his attention to the present and speaks of self-control. See, verse 24 tells us Felix was accompanied by his wife, Drusilla. Now, if you think the way Felix governed was corrupt, you should take a look at the backstory of his marriage to Drusilla. Drusilla was the daughter of King Agrippa I, the man who had killed the apostle James. Her great uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one who executed John the baptizer, and her great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who butchered babies in Bethlehem after the wise men gave him the slip at the birth of Jesus. So there you go for a family tree. 
Historians tell us Drusilla was extremely beautiful. When she was a young teen, she was betrothed to a man named Epiphanes. The stipulation for her to marry him was that he would convert to the Jewish faith and be circumcised as a Jew. And at first he agreed to the terms, but apparently Epiphanes had an epiphany (laughs) that he didn't want to be circumcised and decided to break the marriage contract. That was just too good. I could not pass that up. So we may edit that out. I'm not sure. But the... Then at the age of 16, Drusilla was promised to Azizas, king of Emesa. He does get circumcised as the Jews required, and they were married. Not long after their marriage, Drusilla came on the radar of Felix. Now, Felix had already been married twice. But when he saw Drusilla, he was smitten by her beauty and decided he must have her. He hired a sorcerer to seduce her. He promised to make her a happy woman if she would leave her husband and marry him. Enamored with the occult, Drusilla listened to this sorcerer and was persuaded. She wrongly divorced her husband who had converted to Judaism and became circumcised so he could marry her, she left him and married Felix, a pagan, who didn't convert and wasn't circumcised. Now, these are the people to whom Paul preaches a message of self-control. Are you tracking with me? Fearlessly, Paul stands flat-footed and speaks about self-control to people in power who are living without restraint. See, this idea of being relevant doesn't mean telling people what they want to hear. It means telling people what they need to hear. All we have is the outline of what Paul preached, but I can't help but wonder about the content under those headings. When Paul preached about self-control, I can't help but wonder if he didn't quote Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Since Drusilla is a Jewess, I wonder if he didn't reach all the way back to Genesis chapter 25 to the story of Esau selling his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup because he was more interested in satisfying the immediate craving of the flesh than he was in the long-term consequences. He desired immediate gratification more than delayed blessing. I wonder if Paul didn't preach what he would later write to the churches in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I wonder if he continued with what would become verses 19 through 21 of that chapter. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. Kingdom of God. Paul spoke of the past transgressions when he, speak, when he spoke of righteousness. He spoke of the present condition when he preached about self control. 
And then he spoke about the future when verse 25 says he preached about the judgment to come. You know, we don't hear a lot about this these days, but that doesn't negate the truth of impending judgment. This is the message of Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is the message of the parable Jesus taught about the talents in Matthew 25. After the talents had been distributed, the master went away on a journey, leaving the servants to manage the resources they'd been given. The, the turning point in that story comes at verse 19 that says, now after a long time, the master of these slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the judgment on the unfaithful servant is recorded in verse 30, where the master declares, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The judgment to come is talked about in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, records this sobering scene at the end of the age. Then I saw the great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment to come. In this story, we've seen God's providential plan. We've seen Paul's poignant presentation. The last thing I want you to see in this story is the perilous procrastination of Felix and Drusilla. As Paul preached about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, the Bible says in verses 25 through 27, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Watch this. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. He was looking for a bribe. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Uh, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. It's obvious that money and greed were driving forces in their lives. We have no record of Felix or Drusilla ever changing their ways. In fact, the Bible description is pretty tame. It simply says Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but history does. The reason Felix was succeeded is because he was recalled to Rome. The reason he was recalled was because of a riot that broke out in Caesarea between the Greeks and the Jews. When the Greeks emerged victorious, Felix vented his frustration with the Jews by ordering the Greeks to go throughout the city, bludgeoning Jewish men, raping Jewish women, and plundering Jewish possessions. When Caesar heard about this, he immediately sent for Felix. And were it not for the inter intervention of his brother, Pallas, 
Felix would have been severely punished. As it was, Felix lived the rest of his life in disgrace in Rome, never changing his ways. Well, what about Drusilla? As for Drusilla, two years after this event, she and her son were on a shopping spree in Europe when Mount Vesuvius erupted. She and her son were caught in the lava of the volcano. Drusilla died at the age of 21. See, it is possible to have the truth, but refuse to respond appropriately to it. And we can refuse to respond until we become hardened and calloused to it. Felix waited and waited and waited. He listened and listened and listened. He had conversation after conversation, but he never responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He never moved beyond what was convenient. There is never any record of him being saved. It's possible to prolong making a decision for Jesus, to procrastinate until you come to a place you can't make a decision for him. I'm talking to some people who have heard the message of the good news of God's saving love over and over again. I'm talking to some people who have been around the church most of your life. You know the language of the church. You know the mannerisms of the church. You've even repeated prayers after the minister. But you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus. Some of you are playing the game. You're going through the motions. But the truth is you're lost. And you need to be saved. Some of you listening to this message are under fire for your faith. There's outside pressure, there's fear, there's intimidation. The Holy Spirit has spoken to you about being bold, but you haven't been willing to be obedient, and you're stuck. You can stand and curse the darkness, but it's still dark. Nothing happens until you turn on the light. When you embrace the truth revealed by the Holy Spirit and walk in obedience to that truth, that's when the light gets turned on. The Lord has me preaching this message today to give you one more opportunity to respond in obedience to his voice. I confess I don't know your particular point of struggle, but I know someone who can help you stand strong in the face of adversity. And I know someone who can bring you out with a voice of triumph and a shout of victory. I want to invite you today to come to Jesus. Turn to him while there's still opportunity. Turn to him in full surrender. Turn to him and receive the help you need in the face of adversity. Stand with me, please. <clears throat> 